Quarantine Essay Number 48, We Who Believe in Freedom, by Rick Hudgens, June 19th, 2020. Today is Juneteenth, the African American Independence Day. Bob Dart, Baltimore Sun, June 19th, 2002. According to the Encyclopedia of African American Culture, it is the longest-running African-American holiday. The celebration of freedom never fully conceded, never fully obtained. 150 years after the Great Civil War, it is still not secure. We who believe in it, as Ella's song says, cannot rest until it comes. Until the killing of black men, black mothers' sons, becomes as important to the rest of the country as the killing of white mother's sons. We who believe in freedom cannot rest until this happens, is the actual quote from Ella Baker, 1903 to 1986. Sadly, as relevant today as it was then. And today, June 19th, 2020, we are still in the midst of the longest war in America's history a domestic war, the fight for full freedom for its citizens. Never civil, never bloodless. Freedom is never free. Yet as Diane Nash confidently said during the Freedom Rides, there is only one outcome. In 1961, a small but courageous group of men and women boarded buses and rode across the South to protest segregated bus terminals. They called themselves Freedom Riders. The United States Supreme Court had outlawed racial segregation in bus stations. The court supported the right of any interstate travelers to disregard local segregation ordinances. However, the federal government did not enforce these laws. The Freedom Riders had a simple plan. They would buy tickets on interstate buses and take a two-week journey from Washington, D.C. to New Orleans. They would challenge the status quo of local laws and customs that continued to enforce segregation. It was a dangerous and daring mission. Some considered it suicide. The Freedom Riders hoped that by protesting nonviolently and not striking back, that their demonstrations would provoke the government to enforce the law. When the first 13 Freedom Riders boarded the first two buses, they didn't have much security but they had hope and determination. Nothing happened in the first few days, but on the 11th day of the ride, as they crossed the Alabama state line, police met them at the first bus terminal. They began arresting them for violations of local law, including trespassing and disturbing the police. While Freedom Riders were held in jail, more Freedom Riders traveled to Alabama and took their place. In other locations, the police cooperated with the Ku Klux Klan and allowed vicious mobs to attack the Freedom Riders without intervention or protection. In Anniston, Alabama, over 200 locals met the Freedom Riders with metal pipes, clubs, and chains, attacking the bus, smashing windows, slashing the tires, and setting the buses on fire. After several days of bloodshed, the Freedom Riders were stranded in Alabama. No bus drivers were willing to take them further. 
A hostile, racist mob surrounded them, and the Freedom Riders appeared to be a failure. The original leaders of the plan were hesitant to continue. Then a young woman from Chicago attending Fisk University and the leader of the Nashville student movement insisted, quote, we can't let them stop us with violence. If we do, the movement is dead, unquote. On her 23rd day, Diane Nash agreed to coordinate a second wave of freedom rides. In the middle of final exams, 21 students from various Nashville colleges left school to join the movement. We were fresh troops, Diane says. The movement stayed alive. The Kennedy administration called for a cooling off period. They condemned the freedom rides as unpatriotic because they embarrassed America on the world stage at the height of the Cold War. When Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy heard that more students were continuing the freedom rides, he called his assistant, John Siegenthaler, quote, my phone in the hotel room rings and it's the Attorney General, Siegenthaler remembered. He opens a conversation, who the hell is Diane Nash? Call her and let her know that what is waiting for the Freedom Riders. So John Siegenthaler, the Assistant Attorney General of the United States of America, called the 23-year-old Diane Nash and asked her to stop the Freedom Riders before someone was killed. Nash responded, they're not going to turn back. We know someone will be killed, but we cannot let violence overcome nonviolence. As Nash was bringing a batch of students to Birmingham to continue the ride, she telephoned Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth to inform him. They knew local police had tapped the phone line, so they worked out a set of coded messages. For instance, roosters was substituted for male freedom riders and hens for female riders. When Nash called Shuttlesworth on Wednesday morning to tell him, quote, the chickens are boxed, unquote, he knew that the freedom riders were on their way. Fearing for their safety, Siegenthaler again pleaded with Nash to stop, but she told him the students knew the danger that lay ahead. The night before they left Nashville, Nash explained, they signed their last will and testament. Quote, we will not stop, unquote, said Diane Nash. There is only one outcome. On November 1st, 1961, policies were revised nationwide to comply with the court ruling of six years before. The Freedom Riders had won, but freedom wasn't free. In this story, often told and retold, there are two kinds of zeal. There is the zeal of the segregators, determined to keep integrated buses from passing through despite federal laws. People determined that freedom should be discretionary and willing to use violence to keep it that way. Second, there is the zeal of the Freedom Riders, determined to provoke the government to live up to its highest aspirations and to enforce those ideals, willing to use nonviolence to win what violence will always lose. We who believe in freedom cannot rest until it comes. Rick Hudgens, June 19, 2020. Note, two of my favorite accounts of this time period are John L. Lewis, Walking with the Wind, a Memoir of the Movement, 1998, and David Halberstam, The Children, 1999.